0: This is the EPFR Exchange Podcast. All opinions expressed by Cam, Kirsten, or our podcast guests are solely of their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of EPFR. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions.
1: Hello, everyone. I'm Kirsten Longbottom from EPFR's research team, and I'm joined on today's exchange podcast by EPFR Research Director Cameron Brandt and R. Burns McKinney from NFJ Investment Group. Welcome. Emerging markets will be the focus of today's discussion. It has been another eventful year for this asset class as interest rates in the developed world continue to climb. Globalization continues to fall out of favor with many electorates, and China's much-anticipated rebound from the anti-COVID lockdowns continues to underwhelm. So before we dive in, I'd like to welcome Burns and ask him to give us a bit of a snapshot of his background and his interest in emerging markets as well.
0: Sure thing. Thanks, Kristen, and uh, thanks for having me. I uh, I work at NFJ Investment Group. I'm a portfolio manager here. We're based down here in Dallas, Texas, and uh, among the roles I play here, I work as a I'm a co lead manager of the NFJ International Value Fund, which. Is a strategy that has nearly a twenty-year track record as a really a go-anywhere XUS fund. We let valuations dictate where we go, looking for companies that, that traded a relative discount to their peers, um, and, and specifically those that have a track record of returning cash to shareholders via dividends and repurchases. And you know, we specifically because it's a go-anywhere strategy, we've had you know, wide way to. Uh, to invest in the emerging markets for you know that entire nearly two decades span, and you know one of the things I like to point out that's kind of excited, exciting to us about the space is pointing out the 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 area of dividend payers and growers within the emerging markets, which you know we believe to this day is a, a largely an ignored and really underexploited universe. You know we you know investors have this tendency to. They like to to categorize and group investments into nice, neat little buckets. And you you might have your your dividend bucket over here, and your emerging markets bucket over here. And you know, if you sort of think in terms of you know circles, sort of that that small area where the circles overlap, um, you know, it's a really exciting space. You know, I, I like to think of it. You know, if you re, if you look back in time at those old Reese's commercials where they talk about you know you got your chocolate and my peanut butter and my peanut butter and my chocolate, and you know, you try it out and they work great together. And that's the way we feel about dividend pairs in the developing world because of the fact that you know, if you want to get that developing world growth exposure, doing it within dividend stocks and yielding stocks you know, is perhaps a little more conservative way of, of, of getting that. Because if you're looking at names that they pay dividends, it means that you know, within that space, you're talking about stocks that are perhaps a little bit more mature in their life cycle. Uh, it means that they're obviously producing free cash flow to support those dividends, and i think probably one of the most valuable things is it gives investors earnings transparency you know we've seen going back over the last couple of decades it doesn't matter whether you're in you know in, in taiwan or if you're in houston texas you know it's easy for companies to manipulate reported earnings but you can't manipulate a dividend you know we look down here in dallas we call that train ride money you know it's something tangible you know you can touch it feel it put it in your pocket um, and you know to the extent that the portion of earnings that are paid out as a dividend You know that's real, and you know that management views it as being sustainable. So that's a little bit of a a snapshot as far as how we end up, you know, really like to look at the space.
1: That's great. Thank you. I think we'll we'll dive into a bit of each of those areas you focused on. Cam, to to set the scene for our discussion, can you tell us what picture has emerged from the flow so far this year that we've seen in, on the emerging market side?
2: So it's certainly so far been a year where uh, investors have viewed uh emerging markets as a glass half full, despite uh, a lot of fairly alarming headlines for many of the Key actors, um, the universe of emerging markets equity funds we track have collectively pulled in ninety billion so far this year, uh, while their developed markets counterparts have seen eighty-three billion flow out. So the needle has definitely swung in direction of the EM funds. However, as ever, you know the, top of the headline number often uh, conceals some some uh, you know less uh, compelling. Uh, things and and certainly one of them is that uh, China and India funds between them account for seventy five percent of the headline number. So uh, other markets and regions have been getting twenty five percent of that nice sounding ninety billion slice in in addition to India and China, we have seen a a pickup in interest uh, in Latin American funds. Uh, interestingly tied not so much as has historically been the case to hopes for Chinese demand though that is certainly there but more because of uh, a realization that a lot of the sustainable and clean energy infrastructure uh, that uh especially in developed markets uh, governments are pushing for will require an awful lot of copper zinc lithium uh, and that a lot of that will Uh, of necessity have to come from Latin America. In the past few weeks, we've noticed diminished interest, and actually this has been true since mid-second quarter, uh, in diversified exposure, um, which is not necessarily a bullish sign for emerging markets, but gem equity funds have struggled to attract fresh money now for uh, at least four months. Um and the EMEA universe uh since it uh, uh took that tremendous shot in the shins from Russia's incursion into the Ukraine last year, uh really has struggled to to capture investor interest and money.
1: Burns, I think we'll we'll jump back over to you. Why don't we start with the the eight hundred pound gorilla in the EM room? Do you think China is an investable stance?
0: Yeah. Well, first of all, the fact that people are asking that already tells me that you're going to find value opportunities there because it is so out of favor. And you know, one of the things that you know we look at is we say, yeah, you know, I think in large part, you know, you do need to start looking there because a number of the headwinds that investors have been talking about and focused on over the last couple of years. Are either poised to become tailwinds or they're already doing that. I think, you know, specifically speaking, you know, policymakers have pivoted away from a lot of the attacks, um, you know, the the regulatory attacks on some of the internet platforms, uh, the restrictions related to COVID, those have largely opened up. Now, no one ever said that was going to be a smooth process, but you know, that's opening up. And you know, one other thing is that um, because I think one of the areas you really do have to probably the biggest real area of concern is the the, the housing sector in China. And, you know, you have seen uh, policymakers really shift towards trying to offer some sort of support for um, developers in the housing sector. And, you know, the biggest thing is that China's result of some of these recent headwinds is trading at historically cheap, um, steep discounts to the rest of the world. I mean, right now, the MSCI China index is trading around half of where it was 2 or 3 years ago um the risk premium that investors get compensated um with for investing it's uh over 3 times that for for chinese equities of what it is for us stocks right now but at the same time you know investors should prepare for volatility um you know that sharp turns towards reopening you know is, is something that it's not going to go super smoothly in the near term but you know for longer term investors you know we do feel that the growth story in China, it is maturing, but it's not dying. I think investors, you know, if you think in terms of having a broad, globally diversified portfolio, you know, China's share of the global economy, if you look at it on a purchasing power parity basis, has now surpassed that of the United States. If you look at manufacturing, China has nearly a third of global manufacturing, which is, you know, I think the US is maybe you know a fifth or something like that. It's a major trading partner to a lot of countries. They have the ability to move very quickly to build infrastructure faster than we can. Five um, Gs, you, know, you know, really far along. You know, there's certainly a lot to like in the longer term, but as I noted in the near term, uh, investors should expect volatility, and that actually really takes us back to the point I was making a few minutes ago: was what's one of the best ways to mute volatility, and that's to look at companies that are paying uh, growing dividends, which is a way of keeping up with inflation and. Again, the, the dividend portion of your return, you know, capital gains can be positive or negative, but you know, dividends paid, you know, they're always positive. You can't pay a negative dividend. And so that's one way of going about it.
1: Just to kind of halt on the, the sector fund portion of, of your discussion there. I think when when we're looking at our EPFR tracked uh, sector funds, specifically China technology and utilities, those seem to be areas investors are definitely focusing in and putting money into. Um, China utility sector funds last year saw... Inflows, um, their total net assets grow by fifteen thousand percent, which was quite in, quite incredible um, for that group. But it's that huge upshot, and China technology again seems to be a consistent you know breadwinner in that space. Um, this year, I believe they're they're up to 14.8 billion so far this year. Last year, they attracted 24 billion. So right on track for for a similar level there. I'm um, kind of interesting. What what do you think the the story is be- behind China technology and utility sector funds?
0: I, I'll note within those, I think the utility space is a really interesting way to go about getting that exposure in China. It's not one that gets. Um, you know, really, you know, talked about as much. I think a lot of the focus has been on more of the communications area. But you know, an example, and again, I like to talk through examples because it really gives a snapshot as far as how we think of the world. Uh, would be a name like ENN Energy, which is a Chinese gas utility. You know, right now, that's a name that's trading at about a twenty percent discount to where it has over the last you know fifteen years or so. They have a three plus percent dividend yield. And what we especially like about it is that dividend has grown by over 20% per year over the last five years. And you know, what you're getting there in the name is, you know, China's gas consumption has been growing at double-digit rates, which is really central to Chinese policymakers' admissions cut goals, um, which in many ways makes it an ESG leader. Um, you know, they've had the ESG momentum has been very strong there. They've been MSCI has upgraded their ESG score in 2021, as well as 2022. And, you know, you just overall, you have China trying to make a really policy-driven move from coal towards natural gas. And so, you know, in many ways, I, I like to think of that as a great example of a name whereby you're getting low valuation and solid fundamentals as well as a play on sustainable energy, I think, which could also act as a tailwind for from the investment side going forward.
1: We touched on India earlier as well as an alternative to China. Do we think it's a, a credible alternative to China? Pam, Burns, either one?
2: <laughs> you know, there's a certain Groundhog Day quality to uh, the expectation that India will break free and start to realize its potential um, and certainly its equities <laughs> reflect a great deal of optimism. I think average valuations are running at nearly double China's at the moment, which may be another reason to pay more attention to China given the, the relative cheapness and and certainly you know it has a history of finding ways to short circuit periods of momentum with policy missteps um, but that said I um, I should know better than to say words like this time. It's different. But there is, there are definitely some elements of it that are different this time. Um, there's a lot more top-notch infrastructure being laid down, which means that surges in growth are not going to sort of hit the buffers literally and figuratively as hard as they have in previous moves forward. And uh, I've been sort of paying some attention to the fact that India for a long time was was a market that uh, sort of gave you protection against the emerging markets export story because it was very much a domestic demand story with a relatively low exposure to global trade. That's changing pretty quickly. A lot of certainly regional leaders are moving to take advantage of China's relative unpopularity uh, as a a destination for offshoring. Uh, And there's sort of much more openness now to global manufacturing so um i definitely think in a selective way that it is worth paying some attention to i don't know if you agree burns yeah, i think i think
0: investors do have to you know you know to pick their points i mean india is definitely more of a growth story than a value story but you know as you noted you know the there for longer term investors there is a lot to like you know i think you you know one thing that we really agree with that you pointed out was the uh that they're finally, you know, getting their act together as far as upgrading the infrastructure you know, with respect to the highways, power, water. Um, you know, you've got a great demographic story. Uh, I think as a result of the the, the better demographic and population growth, Ch- uh, India recently overtook China as the world's most populous country. So there's that. You know, bureaucracy, government bureaucracy, as far as permitting for uh, you know investments is uh, slowly reforming. And you have a, a hugely growing middle class um, for which you know digitization has really started to increasingly connect a lot of the population to banking. So you got you know uh, China's working age population is shrinking in India, it's it's growing, but valuations are rich. You know if you look at the market as a whole, uh, you know the overall forward PE multiple of India is is at least half of that of China, and so you, know, you have to pick your points to take advantage of some of those trends. You know an example of something that has been kind of interesting to us, if you want to say that that, that growing uh, population would be something like an HDFC bank, which is, again, we're looking for a lot of those stable premier names over there. It's a name that that still trades at a discount to some of its Indian banking peers. Um, It's, you know, what they are is they're the, the top mortgage finance institution in India. They have a strong asset quality, a good funding base. Um, You know, if you look at mortgages, default rates tend to be fairly low in India. I think that, you know, people you know, really place a lot of priority on, you know, their home is their castle, so to speak. Um, you know, earnings have been growing and a lot of that has to do with the growing middle class and they've been, you know, growing branches to take advantage of that. They have good lending standards. It's, you know, examples like that, where if you're going to go, if you're going to go there, you know, buy the best house in the neighborhood if you can, so to speak.
1: Burns, do you share the enthusiasm we've been seeing for Latin America? Do you see it as a, a green story as well?
0: <sighs> you know, I. I, I don't necessarily. I don't hundred percent know about the green storm but you, you definitely do have um, the fact that a lot of the, the minerals and materials that are needed for you know for green energy and batteries, you know, the, the, the mining sector in Latin America certainly can be poised to benefit. I think that's you know one of the reasons why Latin America was a really good performer last year relative to the other emerging markets. You know, other things that I think that that Latin America is probably poised to gain from would be deglobalization, you know, you think of like a like near shoring and safe shoring of, of both trade and supply chains, you know, they can be poised to benefit. I, I think one thing is that, you know, we at least always have pause in some areas is that, you know, in a lot of countries in Latin America, there's always been a kind of an, call it an off again, on again, off again relationship with inflation. And so um, between that, as well as you know, certain areas where you, know, you might have leaders kind of you know, shifting the other direction, undermining democracy, um, there certainly are geopolitical risks that investors have to to be aware of and sidestep. So we, we don't have a lot of exposure in Latin America today.
1: It's been over 18 months since Russia invaded Ukraine, um, a lot longer than some of us might have expected. But along the way, they've dealt a heavy blow to investor appetite for EMEA exposure. Cam, Burns, is there any hope for this corner of the email universe?
2: Well, I, I think um, before we sort of look at hope and hopefully Burns will <laughs> come up, pull a rabbit out of that hat. Uh, I think it's important to note that while uh, Russia's incursion to Ukraine in some ways crystallized all all of the issues that dog uh, that particular uh, part of the EM universe. Um, It has plenty of supporting actors in terms of making it uh, an uncomfortable pool for investors to swim in. Uh, You have Turkey's dogged pursuit of an anti-inflationary policy that consisted of cutting interest rates. Uh, You have the, the breakdown of South African governance and institutions. You have an increasingly nationalist, statist, political philosophy spreading across um, uh, emerging Europe. And uh, a lot of Africa's classic uh, problems with with weak institutions, uh, drought, uh, post-colonial problems uh, are still with us. So there is an awful lot there that they the headwinds are are multiple and and blowing strong. So, you know, the usual approach there is, uh, again, to sort of think at the company level uh, and to be ultra-selective. But um, EPFR does not sort of advise. So, uh, But were we in that position, I would not be advising anyone uh, to really wade into that corner. But you know, Burns and his team do advise, I think, and I'm interested to hear uh, what he makes of that particular part of the emerging markets universe.
0: Yeah, that's that's an area where really a lot of our risk controls make us a bit hesitant to make geopolitical bets right now. Um, you know, going back to 2022, you know, you had transactions in a lot of areas, at least in Russia, you know, were blocked by the Biden administration. You had the global OTC suspended trading in names and a lot of names there. And you know, whenever you're starting to deal with that sort of thing, you're not necessarily talking about market fundamentals. You're not talking about revenue growth. You're not talking about margins. You're talking about regulators stepping in. And, you know, oftentimes in many cases, you know, you have names that just cease to offer the corporate governance that would make them investable. And so, you know, between that as well as just really challenging price momentum um, that we, uh, you know, we, we kind of operate by the mindset uh, in some cases as value investors. Yeah, you know, we're value investors, but we don't want to bottom, you know, don't try to necessarily attack, the, you, know, you know, nail the bottom. We'd rather be, you know, six months too late to a story rather than six months too early to a story.
1: So we just started this discussion by focusing on one 800-pound gorilla in the EM room, and that was China. Um, to wrap up, what about the other one? And by that, I mean the Fed. And the impact its tightening has had on in markets. Burns, what do you expect anything? Do you have expectations for this?
0: You know, in many ways, that's another case of a, a headwind turning to a tailwind. You know, I think the bond market is finally buying in and finally believes that the Fed is either done or near done raising rates, but also that they're probably going to keep rates unchanged for an extended period. You know, Jay Powell has been very consistent in his statements of there being asymmetric risk of a stop and start policy that the Fed undertook, say, in the 1970s when it came to to fighting inflation. But, uh, you know, really just, you know, if you look at, well, okay, what's the impact of that Fed policy for overseas investors? Um, You know, we look at the dollar, you know, the dollar started 2022, I mean, 2023, rather, um, you know, as overvalued on a trade-weighted basis as it had been in, you know, 30 or 40 years, it was really significantly overvalued. And, you know, with the Fed Finishing their tightening cycle with risk sentiment easing from say where it was last year, when you had, you know, last year you had whether it was factors like the Russian invasion, like the debt earlier in the year, the debt ceiling issues. Um, a lot of that is easing. And so as a result, um, you do have a little bit more of a flight, uh, a risk-on trade, um, should mean the dollar would be weaker. And overall that's usually a positive for emerging market stocks especially many of which you know tend to hold debt denominated in dollars and so um you know that just easing dollar probably again does lead to a bit more of a risk on environment which would be um a positive for investors overseas but again we always like to caution that if you're doing that you know find a safer way to do it look at companies that have clean balance sheets um that you know, have stable and recurring earnings and that are returning capital to shareholders. They're buying back shares, and they're 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 paying out cash to shareholders.
1: Well, thank you both so much for your insight today and giving perspective on the EM universe. Um, whether that was from China to India to EMIA, um, it was it, we covered quite a bit. So. For future podcasts, uh, we invite EPFR and industry experts to discuss timely trends driving financial markets aimed at arming global investors with a deeper understanding of where money is moving and why. If you have a topic you would like to discuss or are interested in joining us for an episode, please don't hesitate to reach out to Cam or myself. Thank you, Burns. Thank you, Cam.
2: Thank you, Kirsten. Thank you, Burns.
0: Thanks, Cameron. Thanks, Kirsten. Thanks for listening to the EPFR Exchange Podcast. For more information, visit epfr.com or epfr.buzzsprout.com. Interested in joining Cam and Kirsten to talk fund flows and allocation data? Or have a suggestion for the topic of a future podcast? Email us directly at podcast at epfr.com.